Welcome to the one within all to another episode of the universe podcast been looking forward to this one for quite some time we all love a good conspiracy chat we can't help it it's entertaining as much as it is morbid and mind-blowing so <laughs> we have tonight the probably one of the top gurus of conspiratainment out there educating and elucidating on a variety of topics through his awesome company, Paranoid American. He's Thomas Gorenz. He's creating comic books. He's creating super weird and trippy AI artwork in the video category that uh, I don't even know how he does that exactly. There's so many things that we could talk about. I'll probably keep it brief in the intro here other than to say go to ParanoidAmerican.com if you want to pick up some awesome comics. And man, I love me some comic books. That genre of, or medium, I should say, of creativity has no bounds. It is one of the more limitless ways our imagination can express. I like that a lot. And I think that we'll talk about the craft. We'll talk about (laughs) some of uh, the conspiracies that he's covered in his comics, some things he's currently researching, how he's doing what he's doing with AI art and why. And who knows what else we might get into. Super excited to talk to you tonight. Thank you for being here, Thomas. Welcome to the Interverse. Thank you, Chance. What an intro. And, and I love the bumper, too. The the background uh, the, with the kaleidoscope effect. I love it, man. Thank you. <laughs> well, it, your company creates it. I'm just the remixer, you know? I mean, that's honestly my favorite part of this kind of like modern culture that we're in is all of like the remixing and everyone just feels free to grab clips and remix and remake themselves. And I know a lot of people are against that, but man, I, I embrace it. I think it's the the ultimate form of homage. So I, lo- I love you guys too. I love all of you guys. <laughs> There's lots of love in the chat already. What's up, everybody. Thank you for showing up to support. Thanks for sharing the stream with people you think might like it. And so dude, uh, what, what have you been di- digging into lately? Well, I mean, you, you mentioned it a little bit. I made it a mission this year to figure out what all the latest AI tools were visually for doing videos and images and just everything. And I wanted to get myself set up to just like I hang on as, as tight as I can, right, to the forefront. It's almost like surfing uh, old school ways or it's almost like Wild West back in the 90s where, you know, not everyone even had a computer. So I just wanted to make a jump on that. And it's been kind of a fascinating journey. Um, to figure out just how it all works, um, the, the ubiquity of the tools, the legal aspects, 
the different infighting between, you know, what they call artists and AI bros. So that's one avenue that I've been fascinated with lately. I really like how you put that. You're surfing the frontier of this technological rollout because we're in a place at this moment where how it's going to work is definitely not set in stone. But the things that you've been creating, follow them on Instagram at, at Paranoid American. Some of the stuff I was talking about this with Jennifer earlier tonight, and she was saying how the fake, uh, fake TV shows from Russia. <laughs> Can you talk about some of those? Because she was fooled by one or two of them. I think that she thought it was real. Yeah. So those were just the uh, the stilled images, and I had made those on Mid Journey a while ago. And for anyone that doesn't not familiar with Mid Journey, if you've been living under a rock, it's basically a Discord bot. You just type a little prompt in discord and say make me a picture that looks like whatever and you can add some fancy little options to it but that's pretty much how it works and it spits out four images and you can just keep refining them over and over so a big part of that process is just coming up with a really interesting prompt and i think for those ones it was just something like 1980s sitcom uh full house dvd rip film grain um, you know, low resolution quality. Sometimes I'll throw like VHS screen cap in there. Just a lot of things that you would see online associated with the type of media that you're looking for. And that's actually an interesting aspect of, of all this AI is that the way that AI understands currently is what it's scraped off of the internet. So file names and tags and descriptions and just all kinds of unrelated stuff sometimes too. So being able to know that kind of thing and look it up, it reminds me of when search engines were brand new. And if you knew how to talk to a search engine, you were like 10 or 20 times faster than anyone else. If you just knew like the tricks and how to speak to it, you know, and how to, and the brevity of it. And that's changed so much now. Like the algorithms just feed you whatever they decide that you're searching for. You don't get to do it the other way around. But in AI, uh, I feel like it's, it's got that same sort of uh, like brand new attitude to it. So um, I don't know. That's one of the, the many fascinating aspects of it. Oh, man. So it hasn't really been narrowed down into the type of thought corral that, say, Google search is. Uh, or it's it's just it hasn't been like force fed to you. So, uh, you know, it hasn't been as controlled. But I, I do think like you were saying earlier, uh, it's like surfing a little bit. But it's also it's like if you stop for two or three days or, you know, God save you, if you say stop for like a week or two and stop paying attention, all the tools have changed, the, the techniques have developed. And if you do that a few cycles, right, if you take two or three months off, you come back and everyone's using completely different tool sets or you go to open your stuff and it doesn't work anymore. So it's lots of daily maintenance and just making sure you're always running the latest and you're fixing the problems that pop up. And uh I I also feel an interesting aspect of this is that pretty soon in the future, already people are paying for services for software. Um, so that's not a new thing, right? Software as a service is kind of replacing being able to just buy Photoshop. Now you got to rent it out every year. But I think the next thing is that all this software is going to change like every week you open it up and they might just be adding features nonstop, like a lot more regular than currently and i think that's because of ai it's just it's jumping so quickly week to week that it's hard to hold on so just to be clear you also believe ai is the boogeyman we're gonna die and skynet is gonna melt the absolutely. planet oh yeah absolutely <laughs> of course <laughs> no i yeah, don't no really think that it. i don't really think that but i'm sure there's see like i really want to actually 
reduce any kind of boogeyman anxiety people might have about this. I don't know. Maybe that's you're the conspiracy guy, well, so maybe I, I that's can not give you some more at. optimism from it. Because I guess I feel like mine's a more healthy boogeyman in the way that we're, it's not AI that's going to kill us. We're going to just end up so reliant on technology, and then the people that understand it are going to retire and die, and then we're just going to find ourselves somewhere in the future. I, I'm not making any prediction on how long, but just so reliant on technology that the second there's like a, a global EMP or, or something that just wipes out, you know, all the systems and you're reliant on, you know, a, a tiny fraction of people, just the way that we lose information over hundreds or thousands of years, right? We didn't know how architecture worked until they uncovered some old manuscripts and deciphered them and were like, oh, that's how you make a really strong column. And this is, you know, the, the ratios. And that could have been information lost even longer to time. But just imagine that on a microprocessor level where you don't necessarily have uh, future ancestors that can try and reverse engineer it unless they also have matching technology to read it. So I guess it's such a far more abstract we're all doomed Skynet's going to kill us, but it's, you know, they're just, we're helping turn Skynet against ourselves, I think. So I don't think that robots are going to just like start murdering people or, um, you know, indiscriminately doing anything that is going to freak people out. I just, you know, it's, it's more of a tool that we're going to end up letting us become the tool and it's going to become the master. Man, I don't actually think that that will happen. I, I well, let me some- hear your perspective. Yeah, yeah. Let me just offer this. I'm still working this out in my head, but generally, so first I'm going on the premise that every doomsday was always a false alarm. Okay. <laughs> That's like, right. I mean, historically speaking, uh, that is part of it. You know, like boogeyman's and, and end times are never really all that they're cracked up to be. So looking for the perspective on how that might apply to AI and taking it out of the realm of like Terminator 2 and into maybe more of a spiritual perspective, right? So AI is... This rhetoric is maybe like cobbled together from other people that I've heard talk about it a bit. And my conclusion currently, I wouldn't say it's a conclusion, but where I'm at thinking about it currently is that if you look at logic based computing and algorithms, right? I mean, it's a system of log, a language of logic that leads it from input to processing to output. So logic in a sense is like the yang of yin and yang you know it's chaos and order right. <laughs> and, and the ultimately so ultimately what i think is that we've been fed for a long time a bunch of bs that logic is dangerous that logic taken to its conclusion is like somehow dehumanizing or inhumane when in fact i i personally think especially in the sense of like yang being the light and Yen being more of the chaos or the, the dark and the feminine, that logic is actually the best thing that we could ever have. <laughs> logic is what rises, brings us out of chaos and into some kind of semblance of, of coherence and order and harmony. Yeah, and no, so, ar- no argument here. Yeah, 100%. So, no argument yet, right? So if AI, which we know isn't really AI, at least in my opinion, is probably not AI in the sense of like it's actually thinking or it's actually conscious. We're we're just using this as a shorthand term for complex algorithms that have sort of learning capacity in a sense, 
But they're they're not learning the way we're learning, but they're learning to. I feel like to debate on that particular topic would be far too philosophical as to like, is it? Yeah, <laughs> well, we does, get, it doesn't we need to be conscious that. in order to be intelligent. I would say. Yeah, and we could. I, I would like to actually take that tangent too. But like to finish my thought because I know I'm get, going long with this is that if AI was truly programmed with clear logic, then wouldn't that logic lead to? only lead to good and to coherence and that if it's programmed with because i think that the anti-logic thing is part of the overall feminization of society towards a communistic you know collectivistic situation and that if we have a system that operates on good logic then good things could come out of it but if it's functioning on some kind of like broken logic broken woke logic you know what i mean then it's going to self-contradict and it's not going to work that well so for the things to refine and improve how they function and work better and better and even if these systems start refining themselves it's going to be with logic and that's like a yang energy that's a light energy it brings awareness it brings consciousness in some capacity so i don't think that it's bad i think that there's good uh, a good outlook for it overall and if it is programmed illogically is probably just going to sort of self-destruct or self-impede. I don't know, man. I I think we can go back and forth on this a little bit, at least. I'm good with that. So, okay. I'm not claiming, I'm not claiming to know. This is just where I'm at. And this isn't a debate. We're just, we're thinking out loud because this is an interesting new frontier, right? So the yin and yang thing, it, it uh, disturbs me a little bit to compare that to AI because I almost feel like the yin and yang, not to be woo woo, right? But it, it almost feels like that's an organic energy source and that if the the source of the, the chaos in that yin and yang is that you're frustrated over technology that's like working against you. I don't know if if that's the same as just like the natural chaos. Maybe it is. Maybe it's it's the same sort of force just brought about through some new fancy tool that we've got. But the other the other aspect of that that I think is more interesting is that talking about good logic is you know as it's it's almost as abstract as good communism right and every time someone's going to try it it's going to be like well it wasn't real communism it's going to be the same exact thing where oh well that algorithm wasn't the right one but even scarier than that and i think the most important point is that with ai we've kind of inverted our control over technology so up until ai starts getting a huge boom over the last decade or so especially in consumer market But before then, it's like programmers sit down, they decide how to design the system, they put the code in, they put the logic in, and they kind of figure it out. With AI, not, and I'm not talking about going to AI and asking AI to write code for you, but I mean just any sort of AI model that you train, at a certain point, it takes over and you are trying to figure out what it's doing. You're constantly trying to like reverse engineer and figure out because if you imagine a a visual aspect of this, if you were to train someone on how to use, you know, your your normal tool set, if you were doing a podcast, I'm sure you've got a handful of equipment and cameras and microphones, and you got to know where all the dials and everything are at to get to a place really quickly, right? Um, and that's kind of like you dialing in just the perfect setting for whatever practical use you're trying to do. Well, these AI training models, they literally have like 13 billion little dials and knobs that they can twist, and they know how to set them all to the exact thing to make, you know, make a voice sound a certain way, make a picture look a certain way, write a paper a certain way. That's essentially the the product of it knowing how to spin that's these 13 billion little dials. 
And when I talk about 13 billion dials, just imagine like a three-dimensional graph um, to us and, you know, how hard the fourth dimension and the fifth dimension. And if you've ever seen those videos where they get into like the 13th dimension, imagine like 14.3 billion dimensions and what that would look like and how you would interact with that sort of an algorithm or a formula. And I just feel that it's outside the, the realm of anyone's brain aside from maybe some future people that, that figure out or, or, you know, have another quantum leap. But I, I don't think that a human being could ever keep, you know, more than a billion or even close to that uh, different concepts in mind at one time. So, so the point being is that we're kind of giving over the keys, like, like uh, AI has taken the car keys away from us and now they're driving. And if there is some kind of, woke you know logic put in or just any faulty logic it might not even be because someone sat down and was like i'm gonna put this woke rule into the system they'll try and train it that way and it might react that way but just like rockefeller medicine system right it's like it treats the symptom and then all of a sudden four or five months go by and you're like oh that doesn't look good like why is my leg swollen is this a problem now so i feel like we're gonna have those sorts of issues to work out in these once everyone gets reliant on chat GPT or, or whatever, you know, fill in the blank. And then all of a sudden someone adds a, a special rule and it doesn't act the way that you'd expect it to. So, and, and we're talking in the next year, right? I think if you extrapolate this to the next 10 and 20, that's where it gets more interesting on where it can go. Okay, man, you're making a good case <laughs> for, you know, a little concern into this, wide range of the unknown but with with the dimensions thing so there's so much fluffy talk about dimensions but when you just kind of get down to the definition we're talking length width height and in my opinion in terms of you know using precise language dimensions we're talking about these measurement measurable qualities that connect to each other correct and then but, when we're and then imagine about, there's like 14 billion of those connections <laughs> but is is that really dimensions or are those just variables? Not well, don't I mean, get me wrong, I, I'm, that's a lot I'm, of variables. I'm using that interchangeably, uh, but yeah. it's it's a dimension in the sense that X, Y, and Z are three different variables. If you were to open up a 3D program, right, that's how you would interact with it. You'd have a variable for your X, Y, and Z. And then for your X, Y, and Z rotation, you'd have a different variable. So now you've got six different parameters. Well, imagine... 13 billion of those and and it's not just the amount of parameters i guess the interesting part about ai is that it understands all sorts of relationships between those billions and billions of parameters in ways that we don't like you might recognize oh someone's got you know pale skin and they're sweating and they've got bags under their eyes maybe they're sick I mean, great. You were just able to put together, if I'm being generous, like maybe a hundred different stimuli. If you count, you know, you notice the blood vessels and that's how you know their face was pale or not. But, but let's say it's like five different things. Again, if you if you take a computer, it might be finding like 20,000 different patterns that it's recognized that has to do with things that humans don't even know what to look for. It might just figure out that like, you know, the, I'm just going to make things up, but the direction of your hair and the color of your shirt means that you're probably, you know, this kind of state. And it would be something that a human being just doesn't have the, the capability of picking up on those specific types of patterns. So when a, yeah, a there's, computer there's AI patterns, can, can do big that. Data, big data can find stuff like the amount of roadkill on a one mile stretch of highway correlating to the average amount of stuffing in a pillow factory, like per pillow. 
you know, like really dumb correlations that make no sense, but it's there in the big data set. And we are, that's why big data is the currency, right? It is. Yeah. That's the, that's a great point. And now the new currency is going to be in on top of the data itself, but being able to crunch that data, which is why you see like Nvidia stock shooting through the roof because everyone's gobbling up their GPUs to do all of this AI training. Yeah. <laughs> so all that's in the mix. Uh, so I, I think like my personal, this isn't really maybe a theory so much, but it's a feeling that with how this technology has gotten to or the point it's gotten, are we looking at humanity externalizing our capacity to create in a sort of the word would be uh omnificent way, omnificent meaning creating all or uh, containing all creative capacity as carriers of the divine spark, what have you, that are we on this road of externalizing further and further our capacity to do it ourselves from our own imagination with our own hands and is that a pendulum that reaches some kind of apex? Is that what the singularity means? And then the ping, pendulum inevitably has to swing back towards the other way of us self-generating things. It, I mean, cause I see it all as sort of like life is a big dream where the outer world is just a reflection of our inner world. And if it, our belief system and our story of ourselves is that we can't just instantly telepathically communicate and see each other from Missouri to Florida, but now <laughs> we've got this story that through the magic black box, we can, is that what this AI emergence is, is us going further and further towards our capacity that we innately have as spiritual beings? I don't think it's all or nothing. And I, on a, a more positive aspect, I really do see it in our short term, at least in my lifetime, it's going to be more like a, a cool little assistant that can do stuff for you. So we're oh, like in, in the movie where they have the AI that's just like, Lila, do this. The, the ones that don't end up killing you. Yeah. <laughs> Even that's, that's like the majority of them. But uh, like working in comics has an interesting correlation to this. Cause I've heard arguments before of, Oh, well, if, if AI does the artwork, then everyone's going to forget or no one's going to want to care to draw or do anything anymore. But in the, the comic world, usually you work in many different phases, right? So you might start with a penciler or a pencil artist, and they're the ones that put down the, the pretty much the basic shapes and all the detail in pencil. And then sometimes the same person does the inks, but also just as um, often, you might have an inker that specializes in just going over someone else's pencil and knowing how to draw like the really perfect black outlines and capture everything without maybe nitpicking every single detail, correcting things as you go. And then you might have a colorist that comes in and they only do the color and they don't do the pencils. They don't do the inks. So some of the arguments, it's like you don't have to do pencils and inks and color in order to consider yourself an artist. Some people specialize in just doing one of those things. There's always going to be Renaissance artists that, you know, try and do everything and, and some are great at it. But if you consider that, like, let's say that you're a penciler and an inker, but you're not a colorist. I mean, you very real can now use AI to do your coloring um, with pretty much consistency. The same thing if you're just a penciler and you want to figure out how to ink it. I mean, that's always kind of been possible. Now it's really easy to just, you know, scan some of your pencils and then have AI create the inks from it. So but it like that doesn't necessarily get rid of those jobs. It just means that the people that normally would have had to not make a project because they didn't know a, a colorist or they didn't know someone that can do 
so massive of, of it. Now they can do a, a solo project or they can teach themselves how to do those extra steps. So it's a, it's a blessing and a curse in some ways, but I think ultimately the people that use it as a tool to help themselves are going to be a step ahead versus if you just, you know, shun it or if you ignore it, because pretty quickly it's, it's not going to be uh, the same kind of job market. I think it's going to be who knows how to talk to AI the best, just like in the nineties, who knows how to talk to Google the best to find something. So you don't spend 40 minutes trying to look for something versus someone that could find it in 30 seconds. It's going to be something very similar to that. I think. It's going to be weird, <laughs> but it's always weird. You know, the further we go, into it the is story. always weird. Yeah. Like, like everyone started forgetting all of their friends and family's phone numbers because you had it built into the phone. Right. Yeah. And I still remember high school friends, phone numbers. Mm-hmm. Because you probably had it on your wall or written somewhere and you just always like we're calling it a few times a day. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's interesting how memory memory is so much greater than what we give it credit for. And that's what I that's part of what I mean about the externalization thing of our capacities into hard drives and and even into books like the Druids, for example. Originally, they were not interested in keeping their esoteric doctrines in written form because it was important to them for their initiates to actually exercise the capacity of their memory. And as somebody that's learning a new language right now, kind of for the fun of it and the interest of it, it blows my mind that we don't just do that regularly, (laughs) that we could, there are polyglots out there that have, you know, 10 languages under their belt and you can remember all that. And to me, it's proof that there's not a hard drive storage space capacity in the brain, but it's more of a, a subtle energy thing. Like our field is our memory in a way, but where, so where well, I wanted well, to you, go, you could almost say that uh, like every time you learn something, it's like you're adding another dial to your machinery, just like the AI has got, you know, the 14 billion that I keep throwing out there. It's it's, and you've got like an unlimited amount of little dials, probably theoretically, you know what I mean? In the human brain. And it's not like there's limited space for them. So you can just keep adding and adding to them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're, we're, that's what I mean about how AI is starting to become the mirror to our limitless nature, which is cool in a way. You know, I think I, I see that the future things improve. You know, there's obviously it, things get bumpy. I'm not a progressivist. There's ups and downs. And it's fascinating how we lose track of, for example, the architecture, we don't know how things were built that our ancestors did. Like fascinating to think that there's a future where the stuff that we're building right now still is around, but nobody knows how to really <laughs> rebuild it or change it. All yeah, that's, that's a good point. Like, like if right now, every single, you know, architect across the world was like, oh yeah, of course we know how they built the pyramids. Everyone knows that you learned that in, you know, architecture 101 class as a freshman, but we don't have that. We've got almost the opposite of that. We have so much, even archaeology itself. And what we know about science seems to change every decade. And if you ever go, you know, more than three or four decades, it's like, oh, how could anyone have believed any of that? So with that amount of knowledge constantly changing, constantly being lost, it just, it's scary once it gets more compressed and that knowledge, like you're saying, it gets externalized, you know, like, um, what happens when AI starts running itself and we're just like, ah, the thing seems to be running itself fine, you know, and no one needs to do maintenance on it because it knows how to do its own maintenance better than a, a person would. 
uh, essentially we just become the guys that stand next to the machine ready to pull the plug out if something goes real crazy, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it applies to all kinds of fields. Like modern electricians don't really have the same know-how or understanding of electricity and circuitry as maybe they their contemporaries would have 50, 60 years ago. And it gets weird. You hear like I, I you hear stories or if you look into it, especially in bigger cities, that particular, you know, using it as an example, electrician, that particular trade has gotten sort of devolved to the point where the bad jobs are done and like hot electricity will just be piped to a sidewalk and someone walking by in New York City will just get zapped, you know, out of the blue because somebody didn't ground something properly. And that could be, you know, that could apply to AI in the future as well. That <laughs> Well, that's a good example of where AI might have done a better job. And then it also becomes a much more interesting conversation if AI makes that mistake. And then it's like, you know, uh-oh, now what do we do? What happens when AI ends up being just as clumsy as people? Not that I think that that's the, the end result at all, but uh, it's a very real possibility. Now, so another thing. Uh, with your AI forays is, is into the video aspect and the, you know, this is one thing I haven't played with or I'm not sure what tools are out there for it. Maybe you can elucidate some of that, but it has this feel when AI is generating video of being like each frame being a potential of what things could have been. And then it jumps to the next potential and then the next potential. It's like, it feels like you're, twisting the dials on some kind of multiversal uh, tuning sensor (laughs) rather than watching uh, actual fluid recording of one consistent movement of something that is staying the same. You know, occasionally a frame will just jump out with a really random variation and then it goes back to the way it was. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. So where it kind of dawned on me to describe it this way was the new Spider-Man movie across the Spider-Verse, which Mm -hmm. is great, by the way. Um, Obviously, I'm a huge Spider-Man And they used AI in that. They did? They did, yeah. Okay, so maybe you know a little more about it than me, and you can tell me about it. Because at the beginning, they're doing some like title credits or sequence like that, and it's flipping it's animated in this feeling like the way the AI animation feels, how it's kind of just morphing rather than uh, moving. (laughs) And it's morphing between alternate universe, parallel reality versions of the same thing, what it is you're looking at there. And that's when I realized, like, could we describe how AI generates moving images more like a, a stringing together of potentials rather than a fluid recording of motion. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're describing that, that jittery effect. I don't, I don't want to get like, I can get really technical on this, so I'll keep it somewhat light. But no, essentially, te- technomancer us, okay. dude. Okay, all right, let's, let's technomancer it a little bit. And, and just to be clear, there are so many different ways to use AI to create video. It's not like there's the one way and they all work that way. There's, you know, there's, at least 10 different very popular ways. And maybe I'll talk about like the top two or three. But first of all, when you see that, that jumpy jittery look, it's usually being done by stable diffusion. Uh, um, stable diffusion is the open source version of what mid journey uses of what I believe Adobe calls firefly. I think that's the name of it. They just came out with their AI version. 
uh, Stable Diffusion is the open source one that you can run on yourself or a lot of online services that offer the service, they're running Stable Diffusion. And if you imagine um, a picture that you might see that's like really blurry and there's ways that you could bring a blurry image into Photoshop or other software pre-AI, right? Where you could make like it look sharper. So if you had a somewhat blurry picture of someone's face and you run some denoising filters on it, the face gets a little bit clearer. So if, if you imagine that process, that's kind of what AI does, except it does it many, many times over and over, and it learns exactly how to unblur things to make them sharper. So that's essentially how Stable Diffusion is operating. It starts, and, it, and the very first one is just going to be random static, which is known as the seed. You'll still have this big, long number. It's just like rolling a huge, you know, 100,000-sided die, and it's like, okay, this is how we're going to disperse uh, a bunch of static noise across a certain size of an image and then it just slowly blurs itself out and then comes into more and more sharper detail over each iteration and that's that's how the image version of uh it works and essentially video just strings a whole bunch of those individual frames all together and the the jittering is because from frame to frame you can specify how much influence the previous frame should have on the next frame. If you set it all the way up, you just almost look at a static image, right? Nothing changes very much because the previous frames are always influencing the next frame far too much. So usually you set that a little bit down so that each frame has a little bit more range of um, how much it can change between each one because that's where you get the motion from. So there's another setting called clip skip. So each frame, when it generates itself, it then analyzes and says, what do I think is in this particular frame? And it uses something called uh, a clip encoding. And it'll say, you know, it's a red image with a dog and a blue ball or whatever is in the image. It gets really basic concepts down. And then it tries to determine how well it's doing with whatever prompt you fed it. So you can tell it to like every other frame, ignore what, you know, you think is in the frame, just go with it. And you can set that usually to like two or three or four. And that sometimes adds a little bit more or less of that jittery effect. And then there's a value called CFG, which doesn't stand for, for configuration, but CFG. Um, that's kind of like, how wild do you want to get between frames? Do you want to keep it look the fairly the same? Or do you want it to look, you know, really completely different and that's when you can get the ones that almost look like every single frame it's like living and growing and demorphing into other stuff that's usually when you crank that cfg value up a lot higher than normal i like the technical explanation here <laughs> so does the so does the audience thank you technomancer thomas <laughs> so so that's yeah that's regular stable diffusion and there's tools one's called deforum which is a really popular one and that does a lot of that work for you it stitches stuff so you can tell it on frame zero, I want you to have a picture of a dog. And on frame 300, I want you to have a picture of a cat. And then it'll just be smart enough to, to kind of start feeding prompts every single frame between zero and 100. Like, okay, give me 1% dog and 90% cat or, or whatever the, the, you know, the lineation is. And it'll slowly start adjusting that for you. And you can add parametric um, you know, ramps and fall off. So it's not just completely linear, just kind of like if you were doing crossfades. So imagine doing like crossfades, but on a whole nother level where it's not just the opacity that you're bringing from 100 to zero. It's like the influence of this detailed description of things that you want and individual elements within that description can have all their own little weights and little sliders. Um, so that's that's the forum. And there's ones that are even more uh, interesting. There's one that basically 
the model was trained on someone that took a bunch of frames from movies and documentaries and scanned it in like it was an image. Imagine just like a grid, like 12, you know, a, a four by three grid of stills from a movie. And then you tell a computer, here's what a four by, you know, a 12 grid of images looks like from a movie. And then you say, okay, now make me a whole bunch of those things. So it spits out, you know, what it, it understands as frame to frame sort of motion. And it gives you a completely wild, you know, um, result because it's not really knowing what motion is. It's just learning from all the stuff that you fed it. And then you, you cut up the images that it produces and turns that back into a video. And that one has way more of like a, uh, like a handmade, um, almost like ransom note. A, like original South Park effect where everything maybe like shifts a little bit around because it might not be completely centered. Um, and then there's some that are trained specifically for video and uh, this one's not open source, but runway ML has something called gen two, I think. And that one is extremely good at consistency. If you've seen those ads on Instagram or elsewhere where people are like turning themselves into clay or turn themselves in the paper and it's got a lot of coherence with less of that jumpiness, it's probably Gen 2 from Runway ML. Man, (laughs) the possibilities. You know, when you're talking about how it starts in this sort of field of (laughs) unmanifest potential and then focuses in and sharpens up, it's weird to consider how that is sort of like your eyes adjusting to a new light setting, you know, going from you know, how things will be blurred and then, you know, they kind of start to come into focus or they, they're dim and they start to come in. So uh, anyway, my question in there is how it has messing with these stable diffusion AI video creators given you any kind of thoughts about the as above, so below nature or the fractality in terms of what it might be showing us as this mirror to ourselves as a, a mirror to the creative principle of nature i mean on like so stable diffusion for the most part as we've been talking it's prompt based it's it's text to image so you you give it some kind of textual input and then it isn't that kind of like uh image. let there be light type of deal <laughs> kind of although what i would say is that it's i don't think it's representing And the way that you're asking, right, is, is it a true reflection of something that is outside of us? I don't, I don't know if it's, if I would agree on those of us. Well, maybe, but I don't know if I would agree on those specific terms because there's a couple things going on. I think the bigger mirror would be, what did you just type into that prompt? Like, what do you want to see? How did you describe it? Because that's describing your understanding of the trivium. It's kind of an interesting tie here, but like the, the things that you need to put into that prompt, it involves knowing grammar. So you have to know the exact words and how to spell them properly and to make sure you've got punctuation even. It's actually really important. You got to understand logic, you know, um, and, and how to like order the things. And then you kind of have to understand a little bit of rhetoric in that you got to like smooth talk the algorithm sometimes or know how to like weight things a little bit differently. But, but ultimately, I'm saying is like once you spit out that prompt that tells the, the AI what kind of image you want to generate, that's the mirror. Before you even see the image, the things that you just wrote are, are probably a better mirror than the image that gets created because the image depends on so many different things. It depends on. Um, what model you're using as your base model, the weightings of that model. If you've got something called a VAE enabled that kind of um, sort of like compresses it 
to make the calculations a little bit faster. If you've got extra embeddings uh, working with it, all of those things kind of alter the decision making. It's almost like if you give it a, a something called like a LoRa, for example, Alora operates by injecting its own biases into the model. So if I go and get like a JFK LoRa and I just type Apple, if that LoRa model is strong enough, it'll only make apples that look like JFK or JFK eating apples or like every single thing will have JFK in it. And that's because the model is just biased a little bit towards that way. And it's, it's almost impossible to get a model that is completely unbiased. So even if you go and grab the base one, Whatever you put in there, it's more of a combination of the uh, the clip uh, embedding, like how it understands your words and what you put into it and how it translates that into images. And then the model, which is determining, you know, what kind of image you're going to get out of it. So I don't know if it's coming from you in as much, but that the feedback loop, I think there's something way more interesting in that feedback loop because one prompt that works with one model might work completely differently with another one. So it's almost like you're poking and prodding and you're doing AI on the AI, right? Like you're, you're adjusting knobs and dials and trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. And this is where the AI, like they don't, it doesn't know what's aesthetically good. There's a few different algorithms that'll do like some gestalt and some golden ratio analysis and contrast analysis and, and try and determine, you know, these look better than others. But that's something that's not great at yet. Man, I'm really having a bit of a like stoner thought here about it all. Hit me. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So I'm really interested in the history of language itself and how before everybody was literate or most people were literate, most of the time in history that we know of, it's just really the priest class the astronomer priests that have the use of alphabets and the use of letters. And in fact, like as I, and the, explored, and the merchants and the merchants, well, that's like the same class. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. Fair point. <laughs> <laughs> to a degree, it's the same class or the, yes. the merchants that maybe aren't initiated. Perhaps they've got it on a more numerical level because then this is to my point that letters and numbers are associated, right? There's this gematria thing. And I wonder because you go back to the, say, the Phoenician alphabet, the 16 or 17 letters, depending on where and when, that has affinity to so many other alphabets, like the Irish, you know, like the Greek and, and the Hebrew and et cetera. And I wonder if, who knows how or where it came from, but is there some kind of veracity or natural truth to, like, a phonetic sound that we make with our mouth? pertaining to a numerical value and is AI possibly opening the door for us to refine our use of alphabets and their uh, numerical values associated with them, their powers of notation as it's known to possibly rediscover something more original or something inherent to the, you know, in a xenoglot, like xenoglossolalia, you know, you do DMT and you see fucking characters floating around, you know, uh, letters and and numbers in some weird alien hyper sigils. Are we possibly opening up some kind of discovery avenue to an innate quality of sound and number? I don't know. Well, that's a real thing, by the way. Um, People that, that can see actual visual numbers around them spatially it's called number form or number field i can't remember exactly what it is but it's a it's a very real version of synesthesia the same type of people that claim that 
you know, they can um, hear blue or they can taste green. Like those are different ways that, you know, the neurons are kind of crossing and a little bit more excited for some people than others. Well, that there's a version of that for people when they get into math, where if they're trying to, to figure out calculation, they got to scale the numbers, they can actually kind of see it and just spatially know the answer is 98, because of course it is, it's right there, uh, which I, I can't relate to that at all. But there's been enough studies and enough documentation that this is a very real phenomenon. So I think that that's very real possibility. That might just be figuring out which kind of gene to express. Um, so that might be like a little, you shoot yourself with like a little, uh, you know, static electricity somewhere. And all of a sudden you can see numbers for the next two hours. Who knows? I feel like that that's very possible. But, but uh, answering what you were kind of asking about that, I think that language and honestly vision and uh, almost everything other than text so far I've been astounded with how easy it is to kind of fool humans and, and not just that we're idiots. It's the same statement could be made with like, I'm very impressed with how quickly AI can make convincing sounding audio images, video, sometimes text, um, because it's, it kind of like makes, it makes me feel humanity is a little bit less creative than we thought we were originally, or maybe we all just thought we had these badass, you know, 16 K eyes and oh man, everything's so crystal clear. And then AI comes along and it's like, Oh, that's cute with your 16 little dials and your optic nerve over there, buddy. You know, you, you don't have anything close to this, this 14 billion again. So I feel like that's kind of the, the bigger aspect of it. Uh, why do you think AI can't do hands very well? Well, it can now. Um, oh, and, really? uh, and one of the, my favorite responses to that one is that that's also usually the hardest thing for an artist to get right, our hands. You know what I mean? <laughs> but right now you can use something called ControlNet, and ControlNet has a bunch of different modes to it. So this is how – I can show you in a little while, but I've got like some coloring book pages that were just black and white art from the original artist in my cryptid coloring book. And then ran those through some AI programs. And I've got realistic ones and cartoony ones and 3D ones. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a lot of cool practical uses that you can run this through. But with ControlNet, there's one called OpenPose. And if you just provide, it looks like a three-dimensional stick figure, but every single limb has a specific color associated with it. So, like, the right shoulder and the left shoulder are different colors. Um, and it even shows you where, like, the eyes are going to be and where the ears are supposed to be oriented to the eyes. So you can get a human body in the perfect pose so that when you go and generate something, they're standing in the exact pose that you want them to, even if the proportions are, like, wild, you know? So on top of that, they have one that it's an extension with hands. So in addition to this little colored stick figure, it'll have little hands with a little segment for where every single joint needs to go. So if you're using control net with all the bells and whistles and open pose and the hand extension, then hands are not an issue. Um, so, you know, it's and then you could also just take an image of another person, like go and find a magazine photo or a still sh shot from a movie and then run open pose on that and it'll extract where the person's standing, where all their bones are at, where their hands are at, and then you can take that. So, for example, you got, like, the Pulp Fiction scene uh, where John Travolta or Samuel L. Jackson are both, you know, um, pointing their, their weapons out. You could just scan that. It'll make a little stick figures of all the people and then redraw it and say, give me, you know, um, Ronald McDonald and the Burger King, and it'll just be them in that scene uh, in the same pose, at least. And all the fingers intact. 
Oh man, Carrie just put a about the language thing. A really great comment in the chat. People have come out of comas speaking a different language. That is true. That is I don't know true. if you've, that is totally true. Uh, has this working with this type of stuff influenced your dreaming at all? Uh, I don't know if I would say that. It, I'm I'm sort of a hard one to figure that out because I've actively been doing lucid dreaming techniques for the last five or six months, which kind of coincides with me going hard into AI. So I guess it would be so hard yes, to just the a correlation there. Some kind of correlation. I don't I don't know if I want to give AI any of the credit for that, but maybe. No, but you could maybe there's a reflection there though. That's fascinating. Well, so Luke is lucid dreaming and what you're doing with AI is almost like two versions of a similar thing. It's a good point, man. I haven't thought of it that way, but doing reality checks, it, like, like, you know, right now, you know, I'm going to go grab a glass of water. Okay. My hand didn't go through it. So we're in reality right now, but this, the AI, it makes you constantly question things because now I'll see a little video clip of something. And if it's not just like in the perfect detail and you know, if it, if it doesn't match all the criteria, it's like, I don't believe that actually happened. That person might not have actually said that that might not even be real video and that's going to be so commonplace that um, it, like we're going to be doing reality checks to everything constantly. And I wonder if that's going to interfere with, you know, my normal reality checks. <laughs> I, I mean, we're, we're past the, we've crossed the Rubicon to where reality checks are pretty necessary on anything media now. Right. It's a little exhausting. I mean, I, I think it always has been, though, because even before this, it was just, hey, did you hear what the person in the town next to us said about the person in the town next to them? And then it would take, you know, a little bit longer. And then you just got a bunch of rumors floating around. And then who do you believe? So it, I feel like it's sort of on the same level, except now it's just global. Like everyone's got an opinion about everything happening in every country at all times. It's not just relegated to like your tiny little village and you know the, the few that are around you so that's the only real difference so while we're in the free hour i want to give some time to talk about other projects because i know ai isn't the only thing you got going on you're the master of the paranoid american comics and print yes yeah, so and many man yeah so what other kind of irons in the fire do you have what are you excited to share with people that they can uh, actually go check out now uh, well, my here. I'll, I'll let me pull up a a browser to my site. But the biggest one that we're trying to get out the door is the Chosen One, uh, issue two. Oh, okay. by the way, I bought the Chosen One on the Kickstarter, and then it, like it came, I had the package, and then I lost it. I was like, "Where did it go? It disappeared." <laughs> Fell into well, I can a, I can get you another copy if, if it got lost. Well, well, what's funny is. I was looking for something else and I opened uh, the drawer of stuff of lost things, you know, the drawer of things that you don't like enough to actually put somewhere proper. And I opened the drawer and there's a package in there. I was like, is this, and I opened it and it was the chosen one and a whole bunch of badass stickers from the one-on-one -on -one podcast and paranoid Americans. So synchronistically I was looking for something else and I happened to find the chosen one comic that oh, I yeah. <laughs> was missing. So that was like a fun sync. This is the one that you're talking about. This is issue one that came out last year and uh, it's got a bunch of conspiracy podcasters. They get special powers. I'm not going to show you the whole thing, but it's got all kinds of alchemical references and inside conspiracy podcaster references. And it really just sets up a brand new universe where 
the the focus and all the superheroes are going to be you know real personalities that we've probably talked to a handful of times already on various shows and it's just a way to i think uh just get more people uh interested and I think taking less of a doom and gloom approach to some of the stuff that we get into, because putting it in the comic book, when you open this up, I couldn't agree with you more that it kind of is, gives you this unlimited potential more so than almost any other medium format, because in almost every other medium, you're going to at least be bound by budget. Uh, so That's even what if I you always can, say. Even if you've got after effects and 3d and the knowledge and know-how you might also need, you know, hundreds or or thousands of hours to get something done to like this high level especially if you want to have like a building blow up or a alien spaceship you know destroy the earth you know there's there's ways you can do it but when you're in a comic book where you get to dictate okay here's the level of detail here's the quality then you know there is no budget you can have an alien invasion with a million aliens in it and you don't have to pay a million you know sort of union workers to show up or some cgi person to copy them or you know with ai and other digital tools you maybe just draw one and say ai you know turn this into five hundred thousand. um but i mean I, I think that the medium gives you that extra ability and i love it because with movies even if you're like really deep into a certain scene or something that someone said, what are you going to do? Like pause it and replay it and like interrupt it But with a comic, you can take your time. You can read through it fast. You can uh, just stare at the pictures and not even read the text. There's so many ways that you can interact with it and there's nothing wrong with just grabbing a comic and just like looking at the pictures sometimes. So uh, I, I kind of love that aspect of it. Exactly what you said. And what I also like is it's not as passive of an experience as a movie that everyone has these. It's really interesting. It's like everyone has these checkpoints in the form of the actual frames drawn in the comic book, but the in between the frames, the action that animates that takes you from this image to that image. We all get to create that in our own imagination, in our own minds you know, independently. So there's this co-creative element of experiencing the comic book. I, yeah, I I've been a huge comics fan ever since an English class in college had us read uh watchmen, I think. And then I realized, Oh, this medium is actually amazing. Yeah. And then it's I not hopped just on... to sell uh, action figures. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like the best medium. Cause exactly what you just said, there's no limit on budget. The only limit is the imagination. It could be even easier to draw the alien invasion than it would to just draw like a mundane shopping mall full of people like that actually might be harder to draw. <laughs> so I love that about it. And, you know, I got, I caught in the, tail end of a golden era of Marvel comics before Disney took over and grappled it all and gender flipped everybody. But there, you know, there was a couple good years in there. I mean, those uh, comics still exist, man. There's enough for a lifetime for anyone that's just getting into it. If you just read the back catalog from like the seven, you know, hell that's the sixties through the nineties. There's I mean, never been a better time because you can people. get the uh, Marvel has, for example, like a Netflix style subscription where you can just read digital, all the old ones. But uh, I, I sold a lot of my comics last year to make room in my closets. And now I'm just whittled it, whittled it down to the, the ultimate comics imprint of Marvel. I own all of that <laughs> before they killed it off. And, and I wanted uh, to put on to one of the things you were saying is that it's this interactive experience where the reader decides what's happening between the two panels. And you can 
sort of multiply that effect on the page turns, which is a really cool dynamic that some comic readers might not, or some non-comic readers might not understand. It's not like a book where you turn the page, the biggest surprise is there might be like a picture there, or it might be the end of the chapter, and you're like, oh, I made it to the end of the chapter, right? That's like the surprise. But in comic books, you can really intelligently utilize that page turn to surprise someone because that's usually where you're going to show a big splash page, or maybe it's like a two page splash, or maybe like some outlandish event happens that happens on that page turn. And it's almost like opening a door and peeking your head in and seeing a crazy scene that you weren't expecting because that door was closed. And that's such a, an interesting, like kinetic and visceral reaction to turning physical pages and reading a book that you don't get from, any other medium, even if you're doing it digitally, it, it loses a little bit of it because, you know, you're swiping. So every page is exactly the same. It's not the same for when you actually have a, like a, a book in front of you. And when I turn yeah. this page, it's going to reveal two new pages that could be anything. Right. Yeah. And you just can't help but taking it all in at once in this sort of peripheral vision thing. So it's just fun. Yeah. It's uh, people out there that never really dip their toes into the medium. There's something for everyone and every type of interest, and every type of story in that medium and probably done better than other mediums in terms of the impact and the immersion that you can feel with it. So that was uh that was chosen one one. And right now on paranoid American doc, I've got my site pulled up if, if I can share. Yeah. So at the very top of my site, I've got a link that goes to the Chosen One 2, and this brings to a Kickstarter, and it's completely free to just click on Notify Me at Launch, and it just means that once we get to 100 followers, you'll get an email that just says, hey, this thing's been launched. That's all it is. This is just feeding the algorithm, just like every other thing. So once we get to 100, Chosen One 2 starts opening up orders, and people can get their special copies, and we've got something really cool planned for this one. In addition to that, I've also got a comic at nasacomic.com, which is uh, stands for Never a Straight Answer, and it's the same deal. This one's really close, too. It's uh, just at 69, so another 30 people just get notified. I'll release this NASA comic, and this is one of my favorite ones that I've been working on for oh. longer than I want to even mention, but I've got, I've got a review copy here that's got my, my little handwritten notes. Uh, from, from my girlfriend's notepad. Uh, this is like little cat mermaids. But this is a, a an amazing comic made by three different artists. Uh, took about three or four years to put together. And it's got almost every single inside Co- Stanley Kubrick reference in here. It's got uh, everything about like the 3M uh, back projection screen. It t- has a whole side plot about his telepathic cat Polly, which is a very real thing. Look into it. Um, Whoa, so that one's at yeah. nasacomic.com. And this one I'm really hoping is going to be uh, the one that kind of puts us on the map because I feel like it just touches every different sort of pop culture and an interesting aspect of it. Like, look at this one right here. It's Stanley Kubrick talking to this general and the general is essentially offering him money if he can just, you know, fake these moon landings. And Kubrick's thinking about all the cool stuff that he can do with that money. So, <laughs> oh, but, I mean, this, wow. this yeah, is the ultimate good... love letter. See, that's what I love, too, is like comics have the ability to portray the internal world of a character better than anything. You know, that bubble of imagination coming up off and showing all the other Kubrick movies. This is great art, dude. This is really good. And apparently Stanley Kubrick was also a chess master. So we've got one where he's hustling the astronauts uh, for their (laughs) lunch money by playing chess. (laughs) 
So this, I'm really, I'm really, really happy about that one coming out. Um, man, let me, let me just see. I got a, uh, oh, there's a, a pamphlet. My first one, this is my pride and joy right here. This is the MK Ultra pamphlet. It breaks down the entire backstory of MK Ultra. I know I've probably sent you a few of these already. It's like one of those. I actually don't have that, but it's like okay, one of those. It's, it's like a uh, you're going to hell unless you accept Jesus. Today That's exactly tracks. what it is. It's the, it's the exact same size, everything. Like it's it's got it down, even to like the the font type and everything. Um, so this is the first one, and you can find this at mkultracomic.com, which just brings you to my website. The second one I've been working on with Juan. Shout out Juan! You're wearing his uh his shirt right now, and it's going to be called the Homunculus Owner's Manual, and it breaks down the entire concept of what a homunculus is, how to make one, what kind of powers they can give you, the names of people that have claimed to have unearthed this research originally. It's really, really, it's a, it's twice the size of the MK Ultra one. And I believe it is going to be the first and only, at least until someone makes another one, illustrated instruction manual for homunculi. Everything else up until now has been like some old alchemical text that you kind of have to translate latin so you know juan's gone through the research and done all that for you and then i help put together and you know we help we help uh the artist craft the images for it so that one i'm really excited about and if that one pulls off we might start offering a kit to go along with it so like you could just order a pamphlet like sea kit. monkeys exactly like sea monkeys yes <sighs> Oh man, you guys are up to some weird stuff, but it is glorious. <laughs> <laughs> Super into it, man. And uh, we're going to have to preview and tease what we've got on deck for hour two. Is there anything else though that you want to promo or any places that people can yeah, go? Yeah, I want to, yeah, I'll, I'll show my screen one more time because there's one other project for. You don't have to rush it however much you want to cover. I've got uh, this series called Illuminati that uh with n-a-u-g-h-t-y and this is my adult only series that um it's probably going to come out next year now i was thinking this year but uh long story short it's going to happen next year and it's a ongoing anthology of a whole bunch of different stories so i've got a full account of john d and edward kelly in the occult wife swap tale where they summon angels and the classic. angel tells them to swap yeah it's a classic story i felt like it needed to be illustrated in full detail no holds barred for any of these there's one called crowley and bush uh which is about pauline pierce and alistair crowley for people that don't know pauline pierce was barbara bush's mom so there's uh some some funny rumors slash theories that alistair crowley is actually a, a great grandfather of george bush um because you know that's where um Barbara Bush came from. So that one's a fully illustrated adult novel, 12, 12 full color pages of Aleister Crowley getting down with um, the Bush family's matriarch. There's one dinner with demons, which I've described as Lovecraft meets eyes wide shut. It's, it's imagine if you showed up to an eyes wide shut party, but someone invited Cthulhu. Uh, so that one's, I'm really happy with this one. It's got this like uh, this 1950s kind of classic, uh, style to it um man i'm so excited about that one this one's called american rebirth and it's basically in the future humans end up dying out but this uh statue of liberty comes to life and in order to repopulate the earth with new forms of life she goes around procreating with other national monuments uh including pedro from south of the border so there is a <laughs> 
a picture, a very adult picture of uh, the Statue of Liberty and the Lincoln Memorial and uh, some statues from all over the world that you'll probably laugh at or maybe shake your head at. Uh, and then I've got a, a couple other ones. This is Sex, Drugs in South America. It's partly based on a true story of a couple that goes to Peru uh, to do an ayahuasca sort of a little excursion and uh, goes a little bit haywire. And then this one is MK Ultra Hippie Assassin. It's a retelling of the Hashashin story of the old man in the mountain. But instead of the old man in the mountain and, you know, uh, in ancient times, it happens in the 1960s. And it takes place with the assassin of RFK. So they, they basically trip him out on some acid and train him the same way that the Hashishins got uh, trained. And a few other ones. Here's some about Mary Todd Lincoln and another one called Sci-Fi Sorority about reptilian Instagram models that uh, trap rich kids in their sorority dorm. So all of these are just part of this one series called Illuminati. It's, right now it's going to only be on Patreon. And then maybe next year I'll do like a very exclusive uh, adults only print, like a limited edition hand numbered, hand signed or something. So that's a, the other big one that you can find. And that's on my Patreon only. Uh, I've got so many other ones here. So I'll just leave it at those top three, the NASA comic, the chosen one and uh, an Illuminati for now. Yeah, and that's just what's new and what's coming. You've got a. Oh, been doing this for a while. Well, I'll I'll drop some ideas on some of the other things that I've been working on without showing them off yet. One's called Mold. It's about a lunch lady that gets tormented by the middle schoolers at her school, and they end up doing some some horrible, irrevocable things to her. She uh she bonds with this uh toenail fungus that she's had growing on her toe that becomes sentient and the toenail fungus tells her that there's this organic mycelium network that's been running the world and that humans are essentially an extension of just a, a massive fungal colony and it kind of like trains her and teaches her how to get revenge on these nasty kids so that one's <laughs> called mold there's one it's like called the spider-man symbiote but it, it's but like in reverse and it's helping an old lady get revenge on nasty middle schooler. also based on a true story, believe it or not. Uh, uh, I've got uh, another one called uh, Rising from the Ashes. That's going to be the Rising from the Ashes podcast that stars Dan Unaki, Dan and Homie Romy that might get a crossover with Chosen One. There's a official comic that I've been working on with Sam Tripoli that comes out later this year for kids. Uh, I'm not going to say anything else about the title or anything on that. Just a little teaser. Uh, man, I can I can keep going on the the JFK uh, voodoo comic. It's called Lee Harvey Oswald Demon Hunter. It's got over a hundred pages done, like uh, penciled, inked, colored. But I need like another sixty pages until the whole story's done. So that's going to be coming out pretty soon. Uh, so it's just going to be nonstop brand new material uh, as soon as I can just get a wrangle on everything. Man, well, I just got to congratulate you on the hustle and the manifestation capacity that you seem to be currently holding. <laughs> it's a lot of, a lot of things at once there that are gestating, formulating, being delivered and et cetera. So well done, man. People can check it all out at paranoidamerican.com. I appreciate that, man. Yeah. Thank you so much. And in hour two, he, we talked a little bit before we started the recording that second hour, we want to discuss Freemasonry and Adrenochrome. And pizza sauce. Okay, pizza you're gonna sauce. say the, you're gonna say the whole word. Okay. Well, we kind of, you know, it's okay. We kind of talked over it a little. Uh, Algo well, probably didn't hear us. 
Well, I'm going to, uh, yeah, so I'm going <laughs> to end up doing a full series on the big A word and I'll be using, you know, I'll be saying it out loud. We'll see what happens. But my, my strategy is to be very clear and um, factual only, like absolutely no speculation. Here's what the word means. Here's the name of the scientist, the location of the laboratory, where he found it, why he named it, what he did, what it was used for uh, in, you know, in actual scientific studies. And I'm not even going to get into the speculation. I'll do that in future, maybe like, you know, hour two rumble videos only, but I want to mm-hmm. get the legit information out because right now there's not a single video on YouTube. There's not a single article online or on wikipedia there's not a single book on amazon that has the the true information that i've kind of discovered so yeah we'll we'll get into that in the next hour oh man that's going to be really valuable so people can find that on my rockfin i'm going to link the stream as we'll continue it on rockfin after this brief intermission you can also find it in the episode description if you're listening to the replay of this and I'll also upload upload it to my Patreon right after the stream if you're a Patreon member, not on Rockfin. But would love to see a lot of you hop over and join us for the premium second hour. And also make sure that uh, if you want to get a tuning with me to go over to my website, interversepodcast.com slash sound dash healing. We are getting pretty far into July in terms of Uh, bookings and availability no longer being there. So, you know, if you want to do it before August, come get a tuning, hit me up. That'll be awesome. It's really effective. (laughs) People are coming back for more. I'm really happy to be able to be of assistance with that. It's uh, it's really something without going into too much more on that. And I appreciate all the supporters here on YouTube. Thanks for hanging out with us. Hope to see a lot of you join us over on the Rockfin side. And in the meantime, here is a fun intermission song. Thomas, it's been great hanging with you. Looking forward to learning more in hour two about the accurate information on this touchy subject. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah. Thanks for letting me uh, to rant. And for anyone that, that listened this far, I appreciate it. And uh, I promise you some really interesting stuff coming up behind the paywall. All right. Awesome, man. Looking forward to it. We'll see everybody in about three minutes. Mm, I'm sure this will taste good in the morning. There it is. I've been looking for you. Open wide, bitch! Yes. This is gonna be looking great on you. I cannot wait.
quite the modifications. Hmm. Things have been going swimmingly.